Good morning, good morning. Let me begin by extending my apologies to those of you who are in the adult Sunday school class. I realize it was a little like drinking from a fire hydrant, a little content heavy this morning, but I was on a mission to get through it all, and I did. And uh, I assure you, see, I know we're going to return there. And so just want to put your mind at ease if you're feeling a little overwhelmed and assure you now that I am going to make up for it by speaking slowly. So turn with me to the book of Romans. Actually, I want you to do two things. Yes, the book of Romans, chapter 15. And also, if you still have it handy, take out your worship guide, open it. You don't need the insert. Look at the sermon notes. Here's where I would like to begin a phrase, a line from the hymn writer, William Cooper. You see it there at the top of the sermon notes? Seeing the law by Christ fulfilled and hearing his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I wish I had a way with words like that. That is simply sublime. Seeing the law by Christ fulfilled and hearing his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I want you to notice three things in that statement. Let me give them to you by way of questions. Three questions. First is this, what do we see? What does Cooper say? We see, seeing the law by Christ fulfilled. What is the law? He is referring, of course, to God's law. There is a God. He has a law. We find that law in his word. We see it, for example, in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. We see it, for example, in the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who declared what? You must. You are too. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. It is the great summation, if you like, of the Decalogue, the Old Testament law. And in that, we see that God, in his law, requires of us absolute allegiance, complete fidelity, faithfulness, and perfect obedience. The scary thing is this, we also hear in the law that there is a penalty, there's a penalty attached to the law, that if we fail to do what God requires, we incur eternal death. And so just as in our society, there are laws that govern this land, if we disobey, we live with the consequences, we suffer the penalties. So too, God has his law, the law of laws, and he demands us to be perfect, to obey him perfectly in every way, at all times, in all places, under all circumstances. And if we fail to do so, the penalty hangs over our heads, eternal death. But there's the good news, isn't it? Seeing the law by Christ fulfilled. And so as a Christian, I look to the Lord Jesus as a believer in the Lord Jesus, I look to him and I see him fulfilling the law. 
And I know that while he was here on the earth, uh, he obeyed God perfectly. I know he loved God, his Father, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know he obeyed him perfectly in all places, at all times, in all circumstances. And I know he did that for me. And not only did he do that for me, but as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he paid the penalty for me, me having broken that law. He bore in his body, his person on Calvary's cross as he hung between heaven and earth that eternal death that was my just reward for breaking, violating, disregarding, disparaging the law of God. And so as a Christian, I see the law by Christ fulfilled. Second question I want you to think on is this. What do I hear? And hearing his pardoning voice. Is there a sweeter sound to the believer than Christ's pardoning voice? Than to know that the Lord Jesus forgives us. He doesn't act as though our lives had never happened. He doesn't pretend that we haven't disobeyed. What does he do? He dissolves our obligation to the law through his perfect life and his perfect death. God reckoning both to us in Christ, whereby I stand in the presence of God forgiven. Why? Christ, Christ, and Christ. He fulfilled the law. He met its righteous demand in the life he lived. He met its full penalty, satisfied it upon Calvary's cross. I receive Christ. I believe in Christ. I cling to Christ. I see him fulfilling the law and therefore I hear his pardoning voice. The third question I want us to ponder, answer is this. What is the result? It's twofold. You see, when I see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, it changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's a twofold result. First of all, it changes my condition. It changes my status from what? A slave to a child. I move from a position of alienation to a position of reconciliation. I move from a position of hostility, hatred, enmity, to a position of peace. I move from a position of wrath to a position of mercy. And there is a complete alteration, transformation in my legal status standing before God, whereby I'm no longer a slave, I'm no longer on the outside looking in, but I am brought into his family as a full heir, and I am called from that day forward a child of God. But there's a second result. You see, when I see the law by Christ fulfilled, and I hear his pardoning voice, and I know my status has changed from that of a slave to a child, what else do I recognize? That this changes duty into choice. What did Cooper mean? He meant simply this. You see, before I believed in the Lord Jesus, the law was a duty. Before I believed in the Lord Jesus, the law, it was a hassle. That's what it was. It was actually the object of my enmity. 
Uh, being a legalist that I was, I looked at the law, and what did I think it was? I think it was the revelation of uh, a closed-minded God. I think it was a revelation of a God who was out to get me. I saw it as a chain, a ball and chain, because I completely misunderstood God and misunderstood why that law, His commandments, were given to me. But now coming to God through Christ, seeing the law by Christ fulfilled, and hearing His pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice, I now recognize that that law in actuality is the revelation of a good God. Therefore, in and of itself, that law is good. Therefore, His commands are good. Therefore, they have now become for me in Christ the object of my delight. In a nutshell, this is a little cheeky, but in a nutshell, that's what Paul's saying in this epistle. There you have it. That's what he's saying in his letter to the Romans, right? First 11 chapters, there you've got the first line, seeing the law by Christ fulfilled and hearing his pardoning voice into the second, changes a slave into a child. That's more or less a pretty good synopsis, right? Summary statement of what we read in Romans chapters 1 through 11, in which Paul explains in detail uh, the gospel of God and what it means to come to him through Christ, what it means to come to Christ in faith, what it means to become one with Christ, because I've taken hold of him by faith. Because he has taken hold of me by the Holy Spirit. And my identity now is completely changed. I am in Christ. Therefore, that law is fulfilled. The duty and the penalty. Therefore, I know I hear every day God's pardoning voice. I know I have a new status, a new condition. No longer a slave, but a child. And then really from chapter 12 through the middle of chapter 15, he explains the rest of what Cooper says there. You see, the gospel transforms duty into choice. And that's what you have beginning in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. All the way more or less to verse 12, 13 of chapter 15. You have Paul demonstrating that duty has been transformed into choice. Why? Because as Christians, we now understand that the commands of God are good. Because they are the revelation of a good God. They are the revelation of a God to us. A God who wants what's best for us. And therefore the legalism is gone. We no longer view the law as a condition to be fulfilled by us in order to earn God's love. No, we view the law as the implication of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And it makes us willing to obey. That's how we must understand this long, protracted series of commands that begin all the way back in the first verse of chapter 12. Where are we in this long list of commands? We're entering today the 15th chapter. Follow along, I invite you, as I read the first four verses for us. Hear the word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, just before we get to the specifics of these verses, bear in mind the context. Back in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul begins to address address a specific issue plaguing the church at Rome. An issue from all appearances, an issue it looks, it seems as though is about to become a point of contention, a point of division. He recognizes that in this church there are Jews and Gentiles, And he recognizes specifically in this church, these believers now in Christ have a slightly different understanding of the Old Testament ceremonial law. And there are still some believers a little confused over the observance of holy days. There are still some believers a little observed, a little confused over what meat, what food is permissible, the dietary laws. There are some believers also confused when it comes to meat, sacrifice to idols. Is that meat in some way contaminated? And Paul recognizes, he basically divides the believers in the church at Rome into two groups. Those who are strong are those who have a full understanding of their precise relationship to the Old Testament ceremonial law, recognizing it was but a shadow that is now fulfilled in the substance of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. The weak are those who do not yet quite get it. He's not doubting their faith. He's not questioning the sincerity of their belief in the Lord Jesus. He's not for a moment, one moment, questioning or doubting their salvation. But they're still hung up on these things. And it's about to come to a boiling point. And so he gives three remedies. Remedy number one, don't judge, welcome. First 12 verses of chapter 14. Second remedy, don't destroy, edify. Verses 13 through 23 of chapter 14. And now the third remedy, don't ignore honor. The first four verses of chapter 15. There you have it, his exhortation, his command, constituting this third remedy. I want us to notice three things. That's it. Just notice three things. We'll have the gist of what Paul is saying here, and we'll make some points of application as we go. First of all, I want you to notice what Paul says about us. Okay? What he says about us. We discover what he says of us, about us, first two verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So here you have it. What does Paul say about us? I want you to hone in on that statement in verse 1. We have an obligation. That's what he says about us. The language should be familiar to us. Perhaps not because it gets a little lost in the English. But you go back to chapter 13, verse 8, and there Paul writes the following. Owe no one anything except to love each other. It's the same terminology in the original language. And so there in chapter 13, he's saying, look, you owe each other love. 
You are indebted to each other, and the payment is love. You are obligated to love one another. You are obligated to love one another. You owe this debt of love to one another. I owe it to Brian, not because of what Brian has done for me, but because of what God has done for me. I owe it to you, you owe it to me, not because of anything we've done for one another that in somehow has resulted in this debt. No, but because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. The debt we now owe to God and we seek to love him now with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the principal way in which our love for God is given legs, is expressed Right now, today, you love your neighbor as yourself. I cannot stand before you. I cannot stand before you. Claim to love God and not love you. The Bible does not allow for that category. It does not exist. It is impossible to love God without loving the people of God, firstly, without loving my neighbor, secondly, I have incurred such a debt and I am under such an obligation and the obligation is lived out by loving others. That's what he was saying back there in chapter 13, verse 8. We now have precisely the same language. And he's giving us a particular instance of how this love is seen in action. We who are strong have an obligation. We owe a debt. This is a way, a small way, a great way in which our love for God is paid out in love toward others. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And he sums it up in verse 2 with a commandment. This is the key principle. This is the key truth in these verses. Here you have it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now check that. Don't run home thinking, well, Paul's telling me I need to be a people pleaser. You've misunderstood him. That most certainly is not his point. Note his language carefully. Let each of us please his neighbor. He does not stop there. For his good. That is for my neighbor's good. He doesn't stop there. What is my neighbor's good? Not whatever he wants. Not whatever he even demands of me. Here's what his good is. To build him up. Build him up into what? Christ-likeness. Build him up in the faith. Build up that godly character, that fruit of the Spirit that is so pleasing in the sight of God. That is to be my goal. It is to see others built up in Christ. That is their good. And I am therefore to function on the basis of this principle, not to please myself, but to please my neighbor for his good to build him up. You can immediately see how that principle command applies to the immediate context. You have believers in this church who are ready to rip each other apart over these opinions, over these issues stemming from the ceremonial law. 
over these issues arising out of the relationship to, to culture and things that are perhaps a little cultured or polluted even by culture. And they are about to go at each other's throats. And Paul is saying, look, this is the principle, especially the strong, especially those who understand their liberties in Christ, especially those who have a clear understanding of the believer's relationship to the shadow, the Old Testament ceremonial law. Okay, we who are strong, notice Paul puts himself in that category. You see, there is a right or wrong. He doesn't shy away from it. It's not his main point, though. He wants to emphasize how these people can get along with each other. We who are strong have an obligation. We need to live out this principle. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. How do we do that in this context, situation, circumstance? I need to bear with the failings of the weak and not please myself. In other words, simply put, the old adage, I am to think of others ahead of myself. Well, we see how that applies in this context. We see how it applies, how it is extremely relevant when it comes to differences. Differences today, Grace Community Church, uh, differences that arise. What's the phrase I've used a few times over the past three or four Sundays? Differences that arise over matters of conscience to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively, right? Matters of conscience to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively. Do I celebrate Christmas or do I not because of its pagan associations? Do I take up the martial arts or do I not because it arises out of Eastern mysticism, Eastern spirituality? Do I drink wine in moderation or do I not because of how alcohol is sorely abused in our society and all the social ills stemming from that? And the list is endless. You know it as well as I do. Well, here is a tremendous principle that we can put in action when we face these issues. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Let's make certain we always have a goal in view. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is not to make everyone look exactly like me. My goal is to make sure I am building people up. I am pointing them to the Lord Jesus, and I am making sure that the decisions, the choices, the life I live will be used by the Spirit of God for their, your spiritual edification. We see how this applies when it comes to making life decisions. We can go on and on. This is, a, this is a great principle. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. How do I decide where I'm going to live? How do I decide what kind of house I'm going to live in? How do I decide how I'm going to use my finances? How do I decide how I'm going to use my spare time? Uh, how do I decide how I'm going to uh, get involved in recreation? On what basis do I make such momentous life decisions? I'll tell you the basis upon which I usually make them, and this might become a little shocking to you because I know you're all saints, but here's the, the basis upon which I usually make it. What do I want? What do I want? What is my preference? What is my interest? Now, this verse is completely transforming 
When it comes to even life decisions as Christians, especially in the context of a local church, let each of us please his neighbor. Make sure as you make momentous decisions, gigantic decisions, life-altering decisions, you have at least one eye on that text. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. How will this build up others? How will this actually lead to, contribute to, the spiritual edification of others. Oh, we can go on and on and apply this. We can apply it to the local church. I can apply this principle when it comes to, well, am I, I going to attend on a Sunday morning or aren't I going to attend? Right? It's a good question. I kind of have to be here. I don't often have to wrestle with it. Some of you do. Uh, am I going to get involved and serve or am I not going to kind of serve, coast through? Am I going to become a member or not become a member? Am I going to put myself out there or just kind of hide in the shadows? Am I actually going to get to know people and engage in people's lives and get involved in their lives wherever they're at? Or I'm just going to kind of put the, the, the hedges up. Finances. Am I going to give to the church or am I not going to give to the church? Even when it comes to decisions in the context of the local church, decisions we consciously and unconsciously make every day of the week. Here's a verse worth looking at once in a while. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I could go on and on when it comes to applying this text. One more. It applies to the family, doesn't it? It applies to the family. Uh, how am I going to uh, treat my wife, interact with my wife? How am I going to view my children? How am I going to view it, wrestle it, when the conflict arises over how I want to spend money, my spouse wants to spend money? How I want to spend my time, my spouse wants to spend time? When it comes to dealing with the children at the end of a long day, uh, how, how does it all work together when it comes to how we spend our free time, how we interact with each other, what we do with each other? How does, it come, how, how does this apply when it comes to parenting, uh, parenting and what it is I'm actually aiming for or getting at? How does this simply apply when I come to that intersect daily in the context of the family where there is what I want to do over here? And I'm faced with what? Well, making a decision that might actually have to go against what I want to do, what I think is in my best interest, what I think is preferable, and actually do what? Dare I say it, put this verse in practice. Let each of us please his neighbor, my wife and my children, for their good to build them up. So that when I face those difficult choices and decisions... Uh, I'm not driven by what pleases me, what I have before me, what I clearly have in view is what will please them for their good, meaning what? It will ultimately build them up in Christ-likeness. Oh, friends, I encourage you. I encourage you. Take that text, verse 2. It's a good one. Memorize it and let us live by it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what Paul says about me. That's what he says about us. Now, it leaves me with a problem. It leaves me with a few problems. One problem is this, you know. Uh, I, I see it. I hear it. Looks good on paper. Sounds great. 
I really have a hard time doing that. I have a hard time living like that. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure I ever think like that. Who can live like this? You're telling me 24-7, this is how I'm supposed to go through life? A little help, please. Well, notice, secondly, what Paul says about Christ. Verse 3, 4, it's a conjunction. He's building. What does it mean? He's saying simply, look, the command I just gave you in verse 2, here's what I'm attaching it to. I'm now going to give you a reason. I'm now going to give you the motivation to obey. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself as it is written. And he quotes from Psalm, the book of Psalms, chapter 69, verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's actually one of the most frequently cited Psalms, Old Testament texts in the entire New Testament. If memory serves me correctly, at least six, maybe seven times, Psalm 69 is quoted. The original context is David. Is David lamenting what? His association with God. And because of his association with God, what? That he had become the object of his enemy's reproach because of God. Well, the psalm from beginning to end is applied, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are meant to derive what? From Paul's citation of this psalm and applying it to Christ. Simply this, that the Lord Jesus who was reproached from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, he was reproached because of his association with God. Because of his determination to fulfill the will of God. Because of his determination to subject himself to the will of God. He therefore subjected himself to the reproaches of man. And he did so, why? Because he had your good in view. He wasn't looking to please himself. He had the good of his people in view to such a degree that he was willing to undergo such rejection, such persecution because of this great reward that was set before him, the glory of God in the edification and salvation of God's people. Oh, hear this, please. He exchanged wealth for poverty, gave it all up. He exchanged majesty for humility. He exchanged a throne for a manger. He exchanged the admiration of angels for the rejection of humans. He exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. As Thomas Watson writes, Christ stood upon even ground with God. Yet for all that, he took on flesh. He stripped himself of his robes of glory, covered himself with the rags of our humanity. He who was numbered among the persons of the Trinity was numbered among transgressors. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? It only makes sense in the light of Christ. 
It only makes sense given what Christ has done for us. Let me just speak for a moment to the unbelievers present. I mean, there is a verse for you. If you're, if you're not a Christian, just lend me your ears. Give me your attention for a few moments. There is a text for you, verse 3. Uh, Christ did not please himself. Never self-serving. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, the reproaches of those who reproached God, fell on me. Oh, you, you need to come to terms with this, that all that Christ endured and suffered here on earth, culminating in Calvary's cross, he did that for sinners. That as he hangs upon Calvary's cross, he's not there because he finds it particularly pleasing. He is there because he knows it's for your good. Does that not draw you to him a little if you don't know Christ yet? Do you not find that just the least bit compelling? That the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who was, is, and could have been forever perfectly happy without you or without me, not in need of you or me, but laid aside his glory, emptied himself of his prerogatives, did not please himself what was in his own interests, but gave himself to such a degree that he might purchase sinners through his precious blood. Again, do you not find that compelling if you're an unbeliever? I pray you do. And if you find it compelling, I encourage you. I pray you, please. You need to go to this Lord Jesus. You really do. You need to go to him. And you need to tell him a few things. You need to tell him your history. You need to tell him your story. You need to tell him. He knows it already. He's waiting for you to confess it and acknowledge it. You need to tell him of your stubbornness. You need to tell him of your sinfulness. You need to tell him of your hard-heartedness. You must tell him of your confusion. You must admit openly your idolatry. You must just lay it all bare before him. And do you know what you will find in him? Oh, you think back to Cooper's hymn. That line, how beautiful it is. Seeing the law by Christ fulfilled and hearing his pardoning voice. That is what you will hear. You will hear his pardoning voice. God extending to you forgiveness in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not please himself, but gave himself up for sinners. But the context here, Paul is not writing for unbelievers. He's writing here for Christians. And he is encouraging us, he's requiring us to never lose sight of this foundational, fundamental truth that Christ's basic operating principle was not selfishness. It wasn't, he was never self-serving. It was never a question of seeking to please himself, but in purchasing us, buying us, redeeming us. He pleased his heavenly Father. He was looking to please us for our good, to save us, to build us up in his own likeness. That is the motivation for obeying the command in verse 2. You've got the command, what Paul says about us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You now have the necessary motivation, what Paul says about Christ. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell 
on me. Third thing I want you to notice is this. What Paul says about Scripture. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days. He's not referring to Plato, Aristotle, or any other classic, classical authors. He's referring to Scripture. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, let's be honest. You read verse 4. I read verse 4, and I'm thinking, Paul, you could have put that at the bottom of the page as a footnote. It kind of interrupts the flow. You've given the command, what you say about us. You've given the motivation, what you say about Christ. And now you kind of add this footnote out of nowhere, and then you're going to pick up your subject again in verse 5. Whatever was written, verse 4, in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might be tempted to think when we first read that verse, this is kind of disjointed, a footnote in Paul's thought flow. On the contrary, this is central to Paul's thought flow. Think it through. Verses 1 and 2, what he says about us. He's given us a command let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Verse 3, what he says about Christ, he's given us the motivation to obey the command. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4, what has he given us? The means to obey the command, which is what? Scripture. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So you have the command, you have the motivation to obey, and now you have the means by which we must obey the Bible. Let me explain how this works in six statements. Here they go. Number one, we hear, read, and study the Bible. You with me so far? We read it. We hear it, right now you're hearing it, and we study the Bible. Commands and promises. Commands and promises. Scriptures. Secondly, when we obey the Bible's commands, we experience endurance. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So our instruction is we hear it, we read it, we study it, promises and commands, that through endurance... So when we actually obey those commands, the result is endurance. When we believe the Bible's promises, the result is what? Encouragement. Look again at verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. We're studying it. We're reading it. We're hearing it. And when we latch on to those commandments and obey them, the result is what? Endurance. And when we grasp those promises and live by them and esteem them and appropriate them, the result is what? Encouragement. Fourth thing I want you to get is this. Endurance and encouragement lead to hope. Don't look at me. Look at the text. It's what he says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's the fourth step. Endurance and encouragement lead to hope. Hope kindles what? Paul makes it clear in other parts of this epistle. He makes it perfectly clear in Colossians chapter 1. Hope kindles 
love. And the sixth point I want to make is this. Love compels us to fulfill our obligation. The obligation is not fulfilled without love. There is no love without hope. There is no hope apart from endurance and encouragement. There is no endurance apart from God's commands. There is no encouragement apart from God's promises. There are no God's commands. There are no promises apart from the scripture. And therefore the need, the need is for what? Us to understand that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. The efficacy of the word of God. That the Spirit of God only ever works in one way. It is through the Word of God. He makes the Scriptures alive to us. We live by the commands and the promises. The result is what? Spirit-induced endurance and encouragement resulting in what? Hope. Hope fueling and feeding what? Love. Love absolutely necessary for what? To do what Paul commands back in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. What does he say about us? That's the command. Verse 2. What does he say about Christ? He is our motivation and our example. The motivation to obey. What does he say about scripture? Verse 4. It is the means by which we obey. Let me throw one blanket statement, a question over all of this as we conclude this morning. Here it is. The question I walk away with and a question I've been wrestling with at some points this past week. Taking these verses to heart, do I love Christ enough to imitate Him by pleasing others for their good? I think that's what the text demands of us. The text requires us to ask and to answer the obvious question. Do I love Christ enough to imitate him by pleasing others for their good? This has been my prayer this past week. This is my prayer for us now. The old hymn writer penned, O wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down, until I own thee conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Our Heavenly Father, as your people, we make that simple chorus our prayer this day in your presence that by your grace operating in us by your spirit living in us that you would open our eyes to the realities the truths of these verses this portion of your word and help us as we seek to live accordingly we do as we conclude this day lift high the name of Jesus we thank you for him we thank you for his willingness to come his willingness to suffer his willingness to endure those reproaches his willingness ultimately to endure your wrath as he hung upon Calvary's cross, that in him we might be redeemed. Receive our worship and receive our thanksgiving, we offer it. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.